as always, um, the news, the New York Times is the daily addiction fact sheet. Uh, some of the news is a little bit of a stretch, but I hope I'll be able to make relevant how addiction theory and practice uh, helps us to understand that. So one giant news item has been Britney Spears. Mm. Um, we talked, we talked, you and I, about Britney Spears in comparison with Demi Lovato, um, where Britney Spears has been in an enforced guardianship since 2008, and Demi Lovato and others, young, there's these young teenage singing stars who get controlled by other people, sometimes family members, their management, because, you know, they're teenagers and all of a sudden they're multi-million dollar businesses. And Demi Lovato uh, broke out of that. Are you aware that she has a song called California Sober? Are you aware of that? Today? I didn't know that was a song now. No. There's actually a song, you know, if you knew it, you could sing it. I don't know it. I'll just give the first four lines. Cashing in my chips for forgiveness. Trading in my shame for perspective. Okay, uh, this is bolded for me. Tired of being known for my sickness. Mm. That, she's going to replace us. <laughs> it didn't work. I'm trying something different. Now, I've also, and you and I have discussed Lindsay Lohan, I had a filter article, she got better the old-fashioned way. You know, she got older and mature and got integrated with her family and has business responsibilities. But Framing Bittany Spears tells the strange story about how she's been under guardianship with her father since 2008. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It sort of like makes you want to make some kind of a bad joke about slavery. How can she's 39 now? And um, I mean, I, she was doing bizarre things in 2008. That's 13 years ago. And, you know, 13 years ago, Lindsay Lohan was, and Demi Lovato weren't in good shape either. <clears throat> Demi Lovato more recently. But, you know, she has two children now, um, Britney Spears, and she makes millions of dollars in Las Vegas. You know, you have to show up, learn your routine, and do your work. She runs the life. So who and how they decide that she requires a guardian. So just yesterday, or uh, sorry, on, uh, on Wednesday, she went into court and she made her plea uh, independent of her attorney. And one of the things she complained about was this. I'm reading from the Times. Spears said she was forced to take medications that she did not want. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. It just occurs to me that a conservatorship, you know, we usually hear about that when people have a life debilitating chronic forever illness. So, of course, that has to be the the understanding that the court system had about Britney Spears' illness. We'll get there. Well, the legal standard, for those who don't know, I, I was a lawyer. I passed in New York and I was a New York and New Jersey attorney. 
the standard is that you're likely to be of harm to yourself or others. Mm. And then you can be in one way or another controlled, although can, thir- not for 13 years. Right. That's something like you're saying, that's, well, you're never getting better. I mean, if somebody goes through a bad period and they're worried that they're going to harm themselves, but that's often months. Spears said she was forced to take medications that she did not want. She said she has no control over her health care, alleging that doctors changed her medication to lithium, a mood stabilizer, after she had told management she wanted to discontinue her Las Vegas residency. You know, she's been working and making a ton of... uh, 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 Britney Spears has enough money not to work. Um, and so she didn't want to go do Las Vegas anymore. After taking the lithium, I felt drunk. I couldn't even have a conversation with my mom or dad about anything she said the experience. Adding that her family did not come to her aid. My whole family did nothing, she said. She said she wants to do therapy at home, but instead has been forced to go to a location where the paparazzi stalks her. You know, I've worked in court systems and people have been forced to go to 12-step treatment because they've had some legal screw-up around drugs or alcohol. And the normal thing that you work out is that they get to have a therapy that they prefer. And she can't even do that. She's not allowed to do that. So um, this is part of where we're headed and I'm going to, you know, talk more about it. Um, c- c- therapy is coerced all the time. Um, uh, people are, I mean, people don't volunteer to take these drugs, you know, lithium, for example, very often. And we'll talk later a little bit about um, medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction but it's not called that anymore let me let me just put, put all that together you talked about demi lovato and you discussed uh lindsay lohan and there's sort of natural life occurrences and being able to better themselves through purpose dare i say connection with things and people um some sense of maturity that they're responsible for themselves but also other people and we're kind of looking at that and juxtaposing and saying can you can we just imagine the counterfactual where uh, Britney Spears was left alone to be an adult on her own without a conservatorship. So that's one thing is that it, you can't exactly say there's no evidence that could possibly happen uh, that, that Britney Spears couldn't have possibly matured into her own in some way, whether, whether you feel like it's clunky or not, or you don't like it, even if you're her father, you know, that she for 13 years couldn't have, if she was left to her own devices, that she couldn't have developed into something and, been some sort of mature and happy life and the other thing is i well, which she has done to some extent as it is i mean she doesn't mm-hmm. shave her head anymore she's not taking illicit drugs she's working and making a fortune she has two children despite so, despite the therapies that she's and medications that she's placed under and being under control of somebody else she's been fighting it's she's fighting to mature out and Lindsay lohan and um, demi lovato kind of refused that regimen, I mean, I don't, we don't want to blame um, Britney um, Spears for her own imprisonment, 
but Lindsay Lohan and Demi Lovato were kind of less obedient. Mm -hmm. And that kind of works. They got to be free human beings. And we'll get here. Um, this is definitely a, that's something we'll lead into. The Leviathan that keeps Britney Spears from perhaps completely self-actualizing, if that's the case, is perpetuated by the idea that she can never get better. So it's just sort of a self-feeding idea that she can she can't grow up if you know you take the chains off and she's go going to be all over the place. So there's no chance. There's no there's no plea that she's able to make. Well, I guess she's trying to now, but there's no um, easy plea that she can make that says, "Well, look at me now. I'm mature. I've got kids. I have I control my finances. I kind of know what I want to do." she's forced to continue taking Medicaid. I mean, it really is some, in some sense, a personal kind of a slavery. Um, and she's, she's trying to be her own. It's hard for your lawyer to make your case. By the way, I saw a guy on television. I was watching MSNBC. It was just one, I don't know him, one of the daily guys. And he sort of said what I was thinking. He said, well, here's a woman who makes a lot of money. She, she's under a very rigorous show business regimen you know you have to be in shape you have to show up you have to work out your routines she's raising two children she's maintaining her old household how is she not able who who decided that she's not able to take care of herself right it's just, it just she is so i'm going to jump ahead now to um another article that appeared in the washington post mm. Brain surgery for addiction. Addiction treatment had failed. Could brain surgery save him? Experimental surgery has kept Jared Buckholder sober for more than 600 days. His success shows what may be possible. Wow. So uh, I belong to a list. I can't describe any individual responses. But several people wrote in and said, can you believe this is happening? Um, one was an American, two of them were American. And then two Europeans wrote in and said, oh, anything's possible with, those crazy, with you crazy or those crazy Americans. But what I felt that people failed to make the connection on, that brain surgery thing is the logical extension of the Britney. I mean, what if they, somebody could say, uh, well, we could operate on uh, mm -hmm. Britney Spears. I mean, mm -hmm. by the way, the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1948 was awarded for lobotomies. Um, you let's pick up on. You were saying that it's a logical. Ex so there are people who propagate the disease theory of addiction, and there's seem to be at least two camps, probably more diverse than this. But one camp will say. Well, I think the National Institute of Health even said this, you know, the disease model is useful for funding, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And then there are some people who say, well, this is it. This is the model. So our solutions have to be focused on helping heal the brain. And for that camp, if you take it seriously, if you take the disease theory as gospel, as truth, then why wouldn't you do brain surgeries? Well, and, and the danger that I pointed out in that famous case you and I have discussed in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. where a woman was, um, she, she was 
on probation for robbery and she stole again. She was in treatment already and she was on, she was receiving a buprenorphine, um, suboxone, and she stole because she preferred fentanyl. Go, go figure. And in rather, in order to defend her being put in prison, she was in prison and out by the time the case happened. They argued she had a brain disease. And one of our great favorites, Johan Hari, was very strongly in favor of that argument. So was Maya Solovitz. And the argument is, well, if it's a way to help save them from going to prison. So unless you actively resist the brain model, unless you say, well, that can't be the right model, we can't work on that thing, you get carried along by the tide. And here's my example of that. Um, Filter Magazine, which we greatly admire, was saying, well, why can't we deal, we're, we're at 90,000 deaths annually now, oh, and over 900,000 people have died from drugs since 2000. And the rates increased to four, by 400% per annum. And it's not just opioids. And what they, uh, uh, an author wrote in saying, why don't we deal with it the way we deal with COVID? I'm going to quote now, the same coordinated national response could also work in the case of overdose. That's what they call drug mm -hmm. deaths. There are three extremely effective FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder, which is now abbreviated, he abbreviates it, M-O-U-D, methadone, buprenorphine, and injectable naltrexone. By the way, uh, at, so Maya, when you interviewed her, says, I don't think it should be medication-assisted treatment, it should be medication. <clears throat> and she had the good sense to say that naltrexone hadn't proved itself. So she's with me methadone, buprenorphine, and suboxone. So it's now called, at the same time, you were saying, well, some people say, well, it's not really a disease, but we'll treat it, you know, like that to keep people out of prison, for example. Uh, some people say, well, we don't think MAT, medication assisted treatment, is really a treatment for addiction. They've jumped that hoop. And they're calling it medications for opioid use disorder, which is what Maya is advocating. And once you start having medications for those things, well, then brain surgery is a logical extension. Well, mm. the medication does X. It short circuits these neuron transmissions, or it, um, you know, the, the frontal uh, frontal lobes are misfiring. Oh my God! So people now, at least on the list that I describe, were outraged. Some of them by this, but it's such a my it's a logical progression of where we're headed. You know, it's unfortunate. I do notice that. Uh, people who are either nefarious or wrong can be barnacles attached to people who have, even if they have really good sense, and especially this is like a perfect host, if they have good sense, but they're uber compassionate. So if they say, well, I, I'm trying to save humanity, but in the way that I feel like we could do that is by treating this thing like a disease, then the saving the humanity part is all a logical person like Maya needs to say, well, come on, we're all on the same team here. Um, and that's what we're discussing is that there's a, 
And we have this nightmare. It used to be represented by George Orwell's 1984. Now it's the handmaiden's tale. The future where people give up being in control of their own lives Mm. is going to be brought on by disease mythology and treatment. Mm. I mean... I, I don't know this guy who got this brain surgery. I don't know anything about him. But what if they gave brain surgery to Britney Spears or to uh, Demi Lovato or to Lindsay Lohan? You know, they were like 18 or 20 or 22. What are, who's going to, what are they going to start arguing with some doctor? Uh, just the way Britney Spears, who's she going to, she doesn't feel competent to argue with the doctors who are giving her lithium. She could just say, I don't like it. And the Brave New World, which is Aldous Huckley, it's gonna be a drug treatment induced one, a disease one. There may be a political one along the lines, but it's gonna come through this. So, um, the other news item that you and I focused on Sorry, but I can't I can't help but linger on this for a second more. Go ahead, <laughs> knock yourself out. There are a couple of problems. I just want to be explicit about why um, if anyone's tuning in and they haven't given this much thought, I would understand that. And so I want to be explicit about why it would be a problem given that this uh, Jared says that, oh, I'm so glad I've had this brain surgery. Um, well, why would it be a big problem? It seems obvious to us, but maybe there's a cursive knowledge problem here. Um, and one thing I might ask is, well, the, the big question, which I'll just put on the table and then leave alone for a second is, can you actually, is it even possible? Can you actually cure an addiction or, or solve an addiction by locating some sort of reward center in the brain and then doing something to temper impulses that go through that section even if let's forget about that for now daniel kahneman called this um what would you call it logical fallacy or cognitive bias the focusing illusion where as we're talking about like uh, drug policy advocates all sort of focus on this one thing that seems like it can get us out of the weeds so brain disease um, and if we are focusing on the reward center of the brain as the way to fix all the problems, Kahneman would say, well, once you focus on one solution to a complex problem, you miss every other possible problem. You miss addressing every other possible problem that comes along with it. So even if we said this is sensible and it didn't seem so Orwellian, there's a problem with talking about a lifestyle condition that somebody might have. And trying to reduce it to some level of the brain and only focusing on that. Of course, I I know how to read the news now. A lot of people have a problem with mainstream news, but every big news publication, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, they always have these these strange headlines that don't make sense. And then four paragraphs in, there's a paragraph that says, to be sure. And even this brain surgeon says, you know, this isn't a miracle cure. They even have a section where they say that... um, this will only work for a certain percentage of people. The problem, of course, is that there's no way to pinpoint addiction, which is which is really a lifestyle and a, a part of an overall lifestyle and experience in some part of your brain. 
we're bypassing the idea of human control of your own life. And the mm. single greatest cure to addiction is self-efficacy. The single greatest one. Uh, the, the therapy that is most propounded and used in America is motivational interviewing, although I often wonder whether it is. The, bo the bottom line is self-efficacy or personal um, power uh, agency. And we're sidetracking that entirely. And you can say to yourself, what if you do that with really young people? I mean, what if you do it with a five-year-old or a 10-year-old? And, you know, obviously that's what they're trying to do in like the Handmaiden's Tale. They, you want to bring up children with the belief that they can't possibly control them. And it's being done constantly. Young people are constantly being told that they have diseases. And now we're looking at not children. You know, when we look at Britney Spears, we're looking at teenagers and 20-year-olds who have difficulty managing their lives and they're being told something. They'll never be able to manage. What a trap. What a prison. And as you said, it's being fostered along by people of goodwill, like Johan Hari and Maya Salovitz, people who want to really help people. It's just, it's just unbearable. If the surgery does what it's purported to do and puts a stop to activity in some sort of reward center of your brain. Let's just talk about it at the individual biological level. I mean, what does that mean if you if you have an inability to experience rewards in a natural way? What does that actually look like for the rest of your life? Maybe you don't maybe you don't use opioids anymore, but what to what you know, what's the outcome of that? What what else what else is going on? Can you do you have difficulty feeling joy? and reward in a natural way in other areas of your life? Is that better than using opioids in a destructive way? That's, that's And in a way, Britney Spears actually got to that by saying, well, lithium is a fog-inducing drug. Hmm. And she doesn't want to take it. And, you know, isn't that a healthy impulse? Isn't she saying, I'd rather be a conscious human being alive and listening to myself and the world around me than being somebody who actually is clogged, covered over their experience by taking this drug. So before we move on to the next section, this is taking many forms. The brain surgery, it's almost like, how could we be surprised by that? Because the, all of the, the idea of controlling somebody's impulses or controlling their own personal narratives, um, I mean, that that's ubiquitous no matter what form it takes it's either it could be medications it could be stories you tell it could be literally brain surgery and i actually know i mean i've had several clients and i know i've had several friends and people that i that i work with even um who are prescribed drugs like lithium and they've decided you know this is really having bad health effects for me not only bad health effects but bad just i'm, I'm mentally unstable and I, it seems like this is only brought on by these drugs, I think I'm ready to leave the drugs behind. It's very difficult to get a psychiatrist to sign on to that. It's di it's difficult and perhaps dangerous sometimes to wean yourself off of the drug once you've been on it for years and years. And it's really difficult to find a psychiatrist who will sign on the dotted line to you saying, I'd like to taper off the drugs. Because you'd have to convince that psychiatrist to put you on the drugs that for some reason your life is back in shape. And if they're a person who thinks, no, you have bad brain chemistry then that's a pretty 
that's a pretty tough sell. And Britney Spears, we hard, it's hard to think of Britney Spears as the avant-garde <laughs> or the last resort for self-determination, but she's, she's making that case. <laughs> she's saying, I don't want lithium and I can manage my life or give me something else. You know, something that's not as all-inclusive as uh, lithium, which is, a, by the way, lithium has been around since the 1950s. Um, and so if you start thinking about miracle drugs, lithium has been a drug of choice for what we now call bipolar and used to be called manic depression for over half a century. So if you're thinking, oh, they're making these great new brain discoveries, think again. And this will lead right into the next section. We're not against drugs at all. And we're not against people taking drugs, but we are encouraging of people to think about the reasons they take drugs and what benefits they give them and what else they have going on in life. And so it's really the branding of the drugs that, that we're against. There is a certain way that, and certain reasons why drugs are available. And I think that ties into your. Well, you, you were also, um, you also brought out the point, what kind of a focus do you have? Mm -hmm. uh, who are they using these drugs with? So, the news article we had, and you have an add-on to this, MAP providers going broke. Drug overdose climbed 30% to more than 90,000 during the pandemic year. The statistic is devastating by itself, but made even more alarming by the fact that many providers of medication-assisted treatment, they haven't gotten the word that it's MOUD now, say they're bleeding cash and struggling to attract and retain staff. We're channeling people into these places. Matt is the standard of care for opioid use disorder and involves medications such as buprenorphine and methadone in combination with counseling. However, the financial challenges of providing such services plague providers and were especially hard by, felt especially hard by opioid treatment programs that serve large numbers of Medicaid patients. So what are they saying? They're saying, well, we can give people drugs that we can handle. We can give them methadone, but to actually try and be involved in their lives. Well, A, that's tough. And B, that's really tough for poor people. And poor people, of course, are the ones who need the most help. Mm. I mean, in general, the educational differences in America are felt and remote learning were felt most by deprived populations because upper middle class people provide their own options for education. And so switching, I'm, switching to medications is the easy way to do nothing. And uh, we've, pub we've put out on the Stanton Peel um, YouTube channel, my talk in Vancouver or throughout Canada about trauma and addiction. Um, and I had a most provocative slide I had was this. We don't really care. Do we? The, I mean, um, the state that has the, by far, it leaps out of every other state in opioid deaths is West Virginia and inner cities they're not whole states, have even higher death rates, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia. 
and it's possible to say all those people at these conferences that I lecture at, we, it's impossible to say they don't actually care about those people. They're not them. And that brings me back to another news item, a strange story about Brooklyn and New York. Um, lead article in the Times, Democrats and crime, staving off GOP attacks, Democrats show new urgency on crime. I, I'm gonna confess who I voted for here. And you can get in a lot of trouble for that in New York. I voted for the guy who's currently leading named Eric Adams. He's a former policeman yeah. who got beat up by the police, became a policeman, fought his way through the system, trying to protect black people. Yeah. And now he's a tough enforcement guy and tough enforcement is bad. Although the Democrats are being hurt by being seen as, you know, being against the police. So Biden has now jumped in. Neither Mr. Biden or Mr. Adams nor other top Democrats have backed away from efforts to reform policing or pursue racial justice measures at the local federal levels. Both men have melded rhetoric about fighting lawlessness with calls for an exhaustive reassessment of policing. But most Democratic leaders from the President of the United States to the Brooklyn Borough President have also firmly rejected activist calls to slash police budgets and divert government resources towards other kinds of social services. So does that contradict what we normally say, Zach? I mean, we would normally say, well, we, you have to support people um, or else, you know, they'll do bad things or do harmful things to themselves. Why are, uh, can we defend, and Eric Adams says, um, he's denounced that approach with open contempt, deriding defund the police activists as a collection of affluent whites and accusing a progressive rival, Maya Wiley, of focusing on left-wing sloganeering. Now, here's the key thing. Only, a, he, only he's black. I think only a black person can make the next statement. At a time when black and brown babies are being shot in our streets, I just saw him interviewed on MSNBC, and this, his statistic is 95% of the shooting victims in New York are black and brown. Mm. And what he's saying is, well, and uh, he, he won every borough. This is a Democratic primary. And in New York, if you win it now, if you win the Democratic primary, I mean, there have been Republican mayors, Bloomberg and um, Giuliani, but the Democrats probably going to win. And he lost Manhattan, Eric Adams did. And he won in poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. And we all hear that African-Americans are against police brutality, obviously. Mr. Adams leading the mayoral election was built in his popularity in the Bronx and the working class black neighborhoods of Brooklyn that have been hit especially hard by a spike in murders and traumas. So in other words, he, he's saying, well, all these, Maya Wiley's also black, by the way, 
in New York, we have this thing now where you can vote for more than one person. So I did vote for Eric Adams first, <laughs> and Maya Wally third, and then there was another woman who won in Manhattan. You're not a you're not a Yang Gang guy. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm okay. Maya Wiley's an impressive person, but mm. I think the guy who's going to lead us out, he understands that you have to target. His answer is you have to target violent areas and people who are more involved in crime. Sure, and you're I, and you can you can make the comparison. Of course, I think that's what you're doing. That I mean, his the whole point of any of his statements is that the solutions that people are proposing are the easy solutions. They sound, they have a nice ring to them. They sound nice, but let's look at the history of solutions like that. They're not helping. And in fact, they're, you can be reasonably certain that they're hurting in some cases, the very people that they're purported to, to help. So obviously we want to improve education in New York and housing, but that's a big job. And so I was working with above and beyond in Chicago and their program with the, in regards to drugs was something they were uh, talking about applying to violence. You identify a high risk population and the difference between drugs and crime in our eyes and is with drugs, you offer them options. With crime, you can say, well, here's your choice. We'll put you in jail or we're gonna offer you a program in order to develop some skills and involvement and community interest. That's a primary difference, but one group of people is perhaps harming themselves and the other group of people is harming other people. So how would you map that onto that article about MAT, which says, um, oh, where did it go? Well, I'll just paraphrase well, it. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Medicaid patients have less options. Right. So, and, and the, the paragraph I honed in on, which just seemed to seal the whole thing for me, was the idea that doctors who want to help, if they are helping, they can't keep the lights on with the system that's coming in. So there's, there's been an idea that uh, there's a gold, MAT is a gold standard. And one way or another, doctors themselves who are supposed to be helping people are disincentivized from actually helping the most poor of the populations who can't pay for the treatment. And obviously, even if they if they're a physician who recognizes that it needs to be more than the drug that they, that the person is getting, mm -hmm. they don't have the resources to do anything about it. And you know, I'm not here to promote our well. The election's over, so and they have to. It's hard to describe the rank they voting. Have, they have rank voting, so as they knock off people who aren't going to win, they throw their higher their second choices into the pool. And it's conceivable mm -hmm. that Maya Wiley could become mayor, although she's down 10 percentage points going in. So we sort of have to hold our hats. But I, Eric Adams says we do have to have targeted programs where we provide after school programs and options for the highest risk group of people. Um, you know, we have to be attuned to their educational opportunities. You do have to tie the things together, but violence and drug deaths are not randomly distributed in America. And the radical thing I said to the audience in Vancouver or Canada was, is it possible that we don't really care about all those people dying? And 
Eric Adams gets out there and says, you know, Maya Wiley's African-American, but she went to Columbia Law School. Um, Eric Adams came out of Brooklyn and went into the police, after he got beat up by the police, went into the police force. A little bit different career paths. I'm not putting either of those career paths down. Um, and he's saying, you know, if you're living in a fancy white neighborhood, you say, who needs police? And it so happens, you've been to my place. I live in a mixed neighborhood now. I used to live in Park Slope. Maya Wiley lives in Park Slope. The current mayor, Bill de Blasio, lives in Park Slope. I used to be at the same Y with him. You ran into him while I visited you yeah, uh, yeah. a month ago. And so, um, oh, right, he walked by, yeah. That was we decided, we decided to in leave disguise. Right, right. And um, the conservatives dislike Wiley. And her, she lives in a wealthy, safe neighborhood. And she wants to, this is an article. Her, Wiley safe, her wealthy, safe neighborhood, my, Maya Wiley wants to defund the New York PD. Her home is protected by a private security patrol. The guard is on duty from 4 p.m. to midnight, seven days a week, and can be summoned to pick up residents from a subway station. So that feeds into Eric Adams' idea. Well, wealthy people want to do away with police, but even in their rich, protected neighborhoods, um, they want to have private guards. And just to tie everything together, uh, the conference that I spoke at that we just put online at Stanton Peel YouTube was trauma addiction and treatment. And Wiley said that she didn't know that her husband was paying on the neighborhood police guard, private police guard. And Wiley said her life partner, Harlan Mandel, uh, she met, I know she met him in Columbia Law School, began paying the annual fees without her knowledge to Prospect Park because of 2001 mugging. Wiley said the experience still has him too scared to walk on the area sidewalks after dark, and he instead walks in the little street. So I, I, I'm not putting down anybody's trauma. You know, if that's how he feels, that's how he feels. But what you might ask is, is it likely that a guy who went to Columbia Law School lives in Park Slope, his level of trauma, what do you think it is compared to maybe the level of trauma in a place called East New York, which has the highest murder rate in New York City? Wouldn't you think their trauma rate would be a lot higher? And when you talk to people in those situations, their response tends to be, I'm worried about future trauma. Yeah, it's all relative. About, right. I want people, I want to be protected now. I don't want my kid getting shot in the street, which has happened lately in New York City. So there's this trauma idea that um, people can imagine when they read about trauma causing addiction, let's say, that, um, you know, you live a basically good life, but, oh, there's a trauma, there's a trauma, and now you've got five out of the whatever criteria for adverse childhood events or, or whatever it is. Yeah, and then, right then you kind of say your life is pretty good, but look at these traumas. That's probably what's caught as opposed to somebody who sort of has ongoing what you might call traumatic events just by living their day to day lives. But they don't see it as that they're just kind of surviving or 
making do with the circumstances they have. So they never, they never uh, have the pleasure of creating that story that I'm traumatized. They move forward or, they, or maybe they don't. But the, the problem is in daily living. The problem is not, oh, you have an event and that caused some other lifestyle for you. I, I like that summary a lot. When you're living daily trauma and you're not a uh, aces for childhood, uh, uh, adverse childhood events. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if you're living that life and you're 16 or 18 or 20 or 22? It's not an ace and it's not a trauma. It's an ongoing, ad it's an ongoing adversity and possibly a life-threatening adversity. And so, you know, I had to vote for Eric Adams because he's sort of saying what I said in uh, the Canadian conference, which is, do we even really care about these people who are experiencing these things who we claim to be so concerned about? Sort of what we're saying is, oh, they don't need police. Let's work on, you know, these rarefied opportunities for them because police are abusing them. And of course, that's one side of it. And, and, you know, obviously, if you ask people, they don't want to be randomly ransacked by the police. But on the other hand, they don't want to be the victims of crime and live their life under a cloak of danger. And so Eric Adams is the person, you know, as I said, the election's over. I can't help him get elected. Um, uh, who bo bo best represents that combination? And just to reiterate, the there's a difference in how we talk about drugs and addiction. Um, drug you, Britney Spears isn't hurting anybody. They're saying she can't manage her own life. Um, that person has a right to self-determination. Um, if you find a high crime area and people who are doing violent acts, that's a group that you wanna be more forceful with and you have a leverage over them because they're in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. And, and that's an essential difference. Um, it, it's, it's all the difference in the world between uh, saying we have a right as a state to intervene with one group because they're mentally incompetent. That's what we've decided. And another group where you're saying they're harming society, including their neighbors, including young people. And those are people that we're going to intervene with, with hopefully in a positive way. But, you know, we, we offer them that alternative. So Eric, Ad let's tie this back to MAT. Um, Eric Adams, by the way, Brooklyn Borough President. He has his finger on the pulse of these things. He has a job already doing that. Right. So what he's... What he's looking at are, okay, there is a problem and it's perhaps sensationalized to the extent that it's making the problem look too simple to solve. Like, oh, police are brutal and they have a high rate of roughing up people who are black people of color. And so let's just do away with the police. And he's saying, well, hold on. First of all, let's get, let's retarget. Let's, let's look at people who are affected by these things. The people who are affected are this population. And so that's sort of tier one of his argument. Let's focus on really the people who need help. And then that breaks out into a variety, just a myriad set of social determinants for people 
what she has a plan for. So it's just the same way that people kind of use use um, a nice sounding theory to promote an easy idea as kind of like a Trojan horse to to engage their policy. He's sort of doing that in a thoughtful, um, honest way. He's saying, stop, everyone, stop. This is the population we're trying to target. These are the people we're trying to help as, you know, wouldn't you say? And you can't argue with that. And then he says, if so far as we're going to help these people, here are ways to do it. Here are ways that are that are proven to do it. Here are the problems. And he's making that little sneaky argument. Maybe it's not entirely fair. I'm one of that population. Mm. I act right, I right, right. I didn't go to Columbia Law School. Nothing wrong with that. Smart woman. Uh, I was beat up. He was beat up by the police and right. he became a policeman. So ironically, I mean, how traumatic was that? This is true, yeah. And it's not so I, sneaky. I mean, it, it's fair to say, like, it's almost like you're, he's saying, well, and you might say, well, who am I? I've never been affected by this, but I've been directly affected by it. And so let's move on from that and then let's focus on the, the issues. As just as you have the advantage at some point, if somebody says, you don't know what the hell you're talking about with heroin and opioids, you know, you get to say, well, yes, I do. But that, right. I'm not basing my argument on that. I'm, I'm, you're not trying to get elected mayor of New York or Burlington, but you're saying, do my processes make sense? Do they help people? Um, that's what I'm running on. But I do have those kinds of experiences. And so what so, would this level of thinking look like and this style of problem solving look like in the, the, in the addiction world? And specifically as a... As a um, as an answer to the current MAT system, which as we see in that MedPage article is falling apart one way or another, it's falling apart, whether the ideas behind it are falling apart or just the structure of being able to provide people those medications, even if they did work, obviously things are crumbling and the people who are facing the consequences of that system not working very well are the people that we're trying to help. What would it look like alternatively to have this sort of Eric Adams mindset to this problem? Well, I was on the board of Above and Beyond, which is an organization in Chicago, and they provided the four pillars of support. It's a population, a lot of homeless, a lot, a lot of drugs, and they provide some purpose for people, education, job opportunities, a home, housing, you know, you have a lot of fancy ways of helping people with drugs, what if they don't have a place to live? And of course, there's um, wet housing, which is like, well, I know they're alcoholic, but they have to have a place to live and they can drink there. Um, community, there has to be a, they, they try and connect people back with their families um, as a way of having a natural community, but some people need this community support of that organization which is called Above and Beyond in Chicago. And then the fourth concept is health. Um, people are gonna do worse things to themselves and to other people when they're not healthy. And mental health is so closely tied to your overall health. And so they provide free medical services. So, you know, you can't, Chicago is a city they have an obligation, they collect taxes, they have an obligation to educate people, to provide them with housing. But that doesn't happen for large segments of the population. 
and um, it's uh, above and beyond was funded by you know a billionaire, a health investor, and he's saying, well, we've got to try and provide these targeted things for people who aren't getting them otherwise in this high-risk area where where it comes out as addiction. We're doing right now. Right now we're creating, uh, Aaron Ferguson and I are painting the blueprint of it and we're trying to organize a program that's sur- that's around MAT or M-O-D, M-O-U-D, <laughs> um, which, which works opposite the way the system's working now. Because I think that those four pillars of recovery, people who advocate for medication or substitution drugs, they, they say that everything they're doing is completely in line with that. So that's like, you can't use the argument, but what about these four pillars that, you know, it's per Sam's own definition. What about these things? They said, well, yeah, we're, we're controlling for social determinants. And at the same time, we're providing medications. They do it backwards. They're like, well, first the medication, and then these things will kind of fall in line. What we're trying to do is say, let's really take a look at these social determinants of life and make sure that they're you know, somewhat steady, somewhat accessible as resources to make sure that people can live good lives. Then if there's some sort of use for a substitution drug, then it, that process will be on the back of already creating a reasonable life and creating a story that these are the essentials of life. And there's one other really essential ingredient that I know you and Aaron are going to include. Uh, there's an overall description, Ademha, this redefined uh, recovery. Uh, Alcohol and Drug Abuse and Mental Health Administration, and they described it as a self-regulated process of improving your relationship to the world. That the process is seen as being under your control. And I know the way Aaron describes it, Aaron works in an MAT setting, it's a tool. When you see it as a tool that's helping you to progress further in your life, that's a whole different thing than it being imposed on you because you have an illness um, that needs to be treated. So Demi Lovato is saying, I reject that. And Britney Spears, maybe we can't judge it, is just formulating that idea. I don't want that medication. I don't want it in my life. It doesn't help me. And um, she, she is yet to take in charge of her life the way that seemingly Lindsay Lohan, a, a, another, of course, person uh, Drew ba- that we often mention is Drew Barrymore is a person totally in control of her life. She's in a different universe. She's a power player. And Lindsay Lohan, somebody who's going, seems in that direction. She owns a string of beachfront hotels. She seems to be doing okay for herself. And the whole, so underlying the whole issue, besides the four pillars, is the self-determination of it. If you don't, and this is, if you don't perceive yourself as being self-determining, as being able to regulate and control your life, then you have nothing. Can I just tell you that um, the personal anecdote, I go to a doctor right now. I almost don't want to blow up her spot, but she's such an excellent physician. She'll meet, she likes to meet with people. She likes to allot time so that people don't feel rushed into 15 minute sections. This is very unique. So she'll let me know ahead of time that this, this appointment's set for 15 minutes or so. 
but we have 45 minutes if we need to discuss anything. So don't feel rushed. Is this in Burlington? It's in, uh, yeah, it's a really close, just a little town outside of Burlington. And uh, so I, she's prescribed me Vyvanse, which is a form of ADHD medication. But she's prescribed to me understanding that I don't identify as having attention deficit disorder. Um, so I've said to her, it's a really helpful in my experience, let me back up. I have explained to her a couple of years ago and just before the pandemic that I'm working, just in passing, that I'm working on a work-life kind of balance right now. And sometimes I'm just like, I need to sit down and do work, but I'm, you know, either exhausted or I have too many things going on. And we discussed for a while, and I won't tell you, I don't need to tell you the whole story about how we got there. And I mentioned in the past, um, I took this prescription for ADHD, but Honestly, I only used it if I had like a big project to do and it was super helpful. Um, so I don't know. And she said, well, I mean, do you feel like that'd be helpful now? And I said, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could try. And she said, yeah, sure. Let's just try it. So she, she has this understanding that she's prescribing me this medication that you're supposed to be taking regularly. God, I, am, I hope I don't get her fired or something. But you're kind of supposed to be taking it every day. But she signed off on me saying just how about you just prescribe me this small amount and then I'll just take it whenever I need it. The only pushback she's ever given, not pushback, the only support or encouragement she's ever given is not to say you should be taken on a regular basis. She's got, she and I have this sort of agreement that I might not take it for three weeks, but if I have a project that I want to do and I feel like taking it, then that's the time I choose to take these drugs and it really helps. And she has encouraged, well, it might be helpful because people have noticed um, people have noticed that it gives negative effects if they don't take this on some sort of a regular basis, but maybe you could just have a workflow that you're prepping your day so that when you take this thing and you do your work, it's under the similar conditions from the last time you took it. And that might be helpful. So this is that, like, that's harm reduction. That's complete it's harm reduction and total common sense. And I'm, it's the ironic thing is that I'm worried about talking about this because I like, don't want to get her in trouble. I, I'm very aware that maybe it's not always conscious, but I'm very aware that this is not the regular way of doing things. I don't think that's not the story I hear anybody else tell about their, their medications or the reasons they're put on them. So you almost have to fight to be a reasonable uh, harm reduction reduction physician prescribing medications yeah where you fit the medication into the person's lifestyles and developmental phase and uh good good work that you found there well let's call today a day and say uh we've covered an awful lot of territory um from Britney Spears to Eric Adams you know the elect duly possibly elected mayor of New, of New York to a woman who's trying to fight her way out of a trap in a way that we don't understand. Uh, and to the woman who's written a song, which we're thinking of making our theme song. Um, uh, uh, Cal what's it called? California Sobriety? California Sober. California Sober. And what's her name? Demi Lovato. She's, she's got our new theme song. She doesn't want to be defined by our disease. And we don't want our society defined by our disease. We want a society that's helpful in a targeted, meaningful, self 
directed, I want this help way. All right, Zach. Uh, I hope we didn't um, do too much ADHD. I hope somebody doesn't watch this and say, these two guys both have ADHD for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, right. They're they'll try, over the goddamn they'll, place. they'll try to medicate us. Well, happy Sunday to you and to everybody. And make sure to subscribe to this channel and visit us at lifeprocessprogram.com. And of course, we we are speaking on behalf of that program where we try our all to give people their own agency to you know, move forward in life in a way that they see fit with, with really good coaching, which by the way, I'm creating a segment soon about how I'm engaging in coaching with one of our LPP coaches, Dolores Cloward. And it's really, really helped me and I get to do it at my leisure. So thanks for tuning in and make sure to visit us on social media. Au revoir. Yes, Danton.